As we read God's Word today from Acts, beginning in chapter 21, verses, uh, verse 37 through, uh, through the end of chapter 22. This is a longer passage, but uh, it's part of the ongoing story that we've been following in Acts. So beginning in, in Acts 21, verse 37, hear now God's Word. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, Hear my defense before you now. And when they heard uh, that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but uh, but brought up in this city at the feet of uh, Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, of whom, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, uh, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness uh, to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem that I was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed... I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Uh, Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought back and brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know what they shouted so why they shouted so against him and as they bound him with thongs 
Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that he went and told, he went and told the commander saying, take care of what you do for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. The book of Acts is history. It's our history. It tells the story. It tells a story, and the stories are told so that we will remember them. We will learn today that Luke recounts the Apostle Paul's conversion story three times in this short history. And today we have read this portion of the story once, and we're going to walk through it a little more slowly and tell it again Uh, by observing some details and making some other observations about what is revealed here. So Luke was a careful historian, and he was an eyewitness of Paul's uh, defense in Jerusalem. But Acts is far more than a recorded history of events. Luke wants to document the authority and the authenticity of Paul's apostleship. Paul was not numbered uh, among the original twelve. And yet, apart from Jesus, Paul is the most important leader who writes 13 of the books of the New Testament. He will become the supreme theologian and teacher of the Christian faith. And he will be the one who is central in the expansion of the gospel to those outside of Jerusalem. Therefore, Luke is is emphasizing the importance of his apostleship. So we saw last Sunday that Paul had been attacked by an angry mob, a misinformed mob that was in the temple. They'd been stirred up by outside agitators, but because of the nasty and untrue rumors that had been spread around, the the ground was fertile for that. And the commander of the Romans had actually rescued him and saved him. Remember, they drug him out of the temple, they closed the doors, so he's now outside the temple proper. And the the Romans who have a a station, a a place built next door where they can observe all this, they see what's going on, they rush over, and they actually rescue Paul from death. And so the mob is worked up because, again, the false rumors and misinformation. I spoke extensively last Sunday about the damage that rumors and gossip do to a church and to people in general. Paul now requested from the commander that he be allowed to speak to the crowd. And we're not sure why he let him do this. It's pretty unusual, but he did. And we need to remember the context of it. How's Paul looking at it? If people just beat you up and almost killed you, would you be looking at them favorably? But here's what Paul would write to the Romans in Romans 9, chapter uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 5. I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. 
who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom the fathers uh, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed of God. Amen. That's his thoughts about the very people who have just nearly killed him. And of these same people, he had not ceased to pray in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul, in the midst of this, is not primarily concerned about himself. Why does he want to speak to the crowd and, quote, make a defense? Is he defending himself? Not really. I think he knows good and well, as he leads up, he tells this story about what God's done in his life and how it's changed him and how he used, I used to be like you, but something happened that changed me And that thing, of course, was he met Jesus Christ. But as soon as he mentions the Gentiles, the crowd goes berserk again. But what did Paul do? Paul is presenting Christ to them. That is his chief objective here. Not trying to get out of anything. He has seized an opportunity to present the gospel to a hostile crowd. And so he's granted permission, and from the balcony he waves his hand and a hush comes over the crowd. I, I, I suspect the crowd was like, they're going to let him talk? Yeah, we're calling for his execution. And now the, the commander, all the, the Roman soldiers bring him out to a balcony, and he lifts his hands, and they finally get quiet. And he speaks to them in Hebrew. And it's interesting that Paul imitates Stephen. And he addresses the mob that surrounded him, and he calls them brethren and fathers. He shows respect to them uh, in, in, in verses 2 and 3. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. I want to emphasize why this is so powerful and important. Paul's defense has five parts. First, he emphasizes his own Jewish upbringing. Second, his zeal for the Mosaic law. Third, his conversion to faith in in Jesus Christ. Fourth, his contact with Ananias, who's a highly respected Jew. And fifth, his vision in the temple in which God had commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So of all the rabbis, uh, Gamaliel was the most revered and respected. Everybody knew who he was. Paul tells this crowd that while he was born in Tarsus, which is an important and educated city, nevertheless, he grew up in Jerusalem and studied under the greatest uh, rabbinic theologian that ever lived. Like David's preparation with his sheep and with his sling and with his harp, God chooses to use those who have been diligent and who, have, who are prepared for service. David didn't know he was going to be the shepherd of Israel, or the king of Israel, but he was faithful in the things God had given him to do. But God was preparing Paul by having him study under this great rabbi, raising him up in the Jewish faith, if you will. The young 
zealous Saul saw a threat emerging in this sect that was called the people of the way. And it's not uncommon for bright young men, bright young theologians to outrun wisdom and grace. And so Saul sets out to annihilate the followers of Jesus and to eliminate this threat. And I suspect because he was ambitious to make a name for himself. So Paul emphasized to the crowd that he persecuted this way to the death. He wasn't just opposing them, speaking against them. He was rounding them up, accusing them, imprisoning them, and in many cases, putting them to death, including men and women. You will recall what he had written to the Philippians in chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I have it all. I have all the credentials. I'm a good person. And if you doubt my story, Paul says, you can ask the high priest, and almost nobody had contact with the high priest, you can ask the high priest who bears witness and all the council of the elders from whom also I received letters or authorization, a commission, if you will, that I would go out and bring these Christians to, to Jerusalem to be punished. They're the ones that hired me to do that. That's, I'm not a nobody. That's how significant my opposition was. He had been commissioned by the highest Jewish authorities, and so it would be hard to find anyone with better credentials, Jewish credentials, than Paul. And then suddenly, as Saul was on his way to arrest more Christians at high noon, a bright light shines, a a, a brilliant light that overcomes the sun and stops him in his tracks. He's headed this way and stops, can't see, doesn't know what's going on. And by the way, this is often how God works. Jesus has conquered in this his greatest public enemy. He is making them his footstool. Jesus has all of Paul's attention, and like many who were headed one way to do their dirty deeds... And then he, Jesus abruptly interrupts our plans and completely reverses our course through some event, through some, maybe we get caught, maybe we're exposed, maybe uh, there's all kinds of ways God does this. He's very creative to catch us, to stop us, to awaken us, to stir us, to move us. That's what he does with Paul, and that's what Paul's telling them. How else do you explain this? Like Moses, Paul had both seen a bright light and heard the voice of the Lord. Both men had been commissioned to go and be witnesses for God. What else could possibly explain this enormous reversal? The persecutor of Christians, Saul, was now to become, has become an apologist for the Messiah. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. 
The others with him saw the light, didn't hear the voice. And so he says, I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So Paul in his zeal was persecuting Jesus' people, his body, which was the same as persecuting him. That's how Jesus sees this. And in Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about the final separation of the sheep from the goats on the last day, Jesus tells those who are going to be surprised on the judgment day, then he will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch, remember they said, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? When, what are you talking about? And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, uh, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and vice versa. If you did it to them, you did it to me. And so the next thing Paul describes is his own humbled estate where he is led by the hand of those who were with him and he comes to Damascus. He's the leader of this group and now he's having to be led by the hand. And so he is taken to the house of Ananias who is well known as a devout man according to the law. Everybody knew that. Having, remember, part of the accusation against Paul is, oh, he's teaching us to disregard the law of Moses and disregard the temple. He, he's against the Jews. He's against our heritage. He's against our traditions. But Ananias had a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. Again, lending more credibility. He said, I've got, I, I have uh, references. And then Ananias came over to Paul and he said to him in Acts 22, 13 through 16, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour I looked up at him and then, and then he said, The God of our fathers, who would that be? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Go get baptized right away. First thing. Notice what Ananias says to Saul. The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you would know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. In both chapter 3, Peter's sermon, and in chapter 7, Stephen's speech, The Messiah is referred to as the just one. Sometimes it's translated the righteous one. The crowd knew exactly who Paul was referring to since both Isaiah and Ezekiel had spoken of him. Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the just one. Then Paul says to them, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. First place he goes after all this happens is to the temple. That I was in a trance and I saw him say to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, They know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. 
So there is this mystical dimension of how the Spirit works with the apostles, the same way he did with the prophets. Apostles and prophets, God's speaking directly. So, so Paul was in a similar situation to Peter, as Peter was when he had his vision and the sheet came down from heaven. Or when John, we read in the book of Revelation, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Some have seen a parallel of this call for Paul and the call for, that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then in Isaiah 6, starting in verse 8, this Isaiah. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are are without a man and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. By the way, this is exactly what's going to happen in first century Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. is just around the corner. And Paul is up here speaking to them, warning them, calling them, pointing them to the Messiah. So Paul, like Isaiah, is delivering the message. And he's doing it faithfully and directly and with great courage, I might add. And so what happens is they've listened so far. They've heard his testimony, if you will, his story, his credentials. But what sets them on fire is the mention of the word Gentiles. The dogs. Those people. The unholy people. They're not like us. They're beneath us. Remember, he had been accused of bringing a Greek into the temple. That was a false accusation also. That's one of the main charges against him here. Acts 22, 22 through 23. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Crucify him! And then they cried out and tore their clothes through dust in the air. I want you to get this scene in your mind of a totally worked up lynch mob. Tearing their clothes, throwing dust in the air. They want to rip him to pieces. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted against him. So in other words, we're going to interrogate this man. And the way the Romans did that was torture. We're going to beat him until he tells us the truth. Scourging, as had been done to Jesus, was the standard way of extracting information from prisoners. The scourge was an instrument of torture made of leather strips on a wooden stick with pieces of bone or metal tied into the ends of each strip. This by itself could kill a man or maim him for life. And Paul was no stranger to this. In 2 Corinthians 11:24, he says, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. This isn't new to him. 
And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned, who's not guilty, hadn't been found guilty, hadn't had a trial? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care of what you, be careful of what you do with this guy. He says he's a Roman citizen. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. In other words, I bribed my way into getting this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Citizenship was highly prized, highly valuable. In, in the Roman world. And then immediately those who were about to examine him, they were about to scourge him, withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out uh, that he was a Roman because he had put him in shackles. And, and that, that commander was a man named Claudius. He had, uh, had Claudius scourged a Roman citizen and that citizen were to die, then he would probably be put to death. That's how serious this was. Even having him locked up in chains was going to potentially cause trouble. So on the other hand, if someone... So when Paul's asked, are you a Roman citizen? On the other hand, if someone said, yes, I'm a Roman citizen, and it turned out not to be true, he dies. They took this very, very seriously. N.T. Wright comments, he says, for some Jews in Tarsus... Uh, were becoming Roman citizens at least a hundred years before Paul's day. So it's perfectly possible that Paul's citizenship was inherited not just by him, but by his father and even grandfather before him. Paul was, in short, well qualified for the work God had for him, a Jew of the strictest pedigree and highest biblical training, a Greek speaker and thinker thoroughly at home with the world of ancient philosophy and rhetoric, and a Roman citizen who knew his rights under the law and was determined to use them as necessary. We already saw, discussing the incident in Philippi, that uh, what a terrifying thing it could be for a Roman soldier to discover, even by mistake, that he may have uh, tied up, let alone flogged a Roman citizen. Paul asking his initial question rubs the point in by adding, I haven't even been found guilty. I mean, even if he'd been found guilty, he couldn't, they couldn't flog him. So this story is another great example of how God is going to turn tragedy into comedy, which is another way of saying taking a sad story and turning in, having a happy ending, a good ending. He did it with Adam. He did it with Joseph and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus. In fact, the Bible is full of this story. And here it is again. This is God's story, and nothing throws him off. No curveballs, no surprises, no contingencies. And your story, our stories, are also God's stories. Paul had an eternal perspective that allowed him to face every day and every situation with a calm assurance. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1, 19-26. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ's, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what, I sh- what shall I choose? I can't tell. If I was given the choice, it would be hard to pick. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you uh, with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So our story today ends as a cliffhanger. Uh, and we'll take up the rest of this story next week. Verse 30, the last verse of this chapter says, The next day, so he's had this speech, they're calling for his death. They've taken him in the barracks. He's, he's uh, appealed to his Roman citizenship. And so the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, remember they had given, when he asked the crowd, why are you, why you want to kill this guy, they, he got different answers, contradictory answers. Now, Paul's given his version. And so he, he, he says that he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, so he released him from his handcuffs, if you will, and commanded the chief priest and all their council, that is the Jews, uh, to appear. He he calls for an assembly of the Jewish leadership, and he brought Paul down, and he set him before them. So that's where we're going to end the story this Sunday. Now what? He's going to have another trial and make another defense. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. We too often spend our days in the fear of men and circumstances while failing to entrust our safety to you. Thank you for preserving this infallible record of your powerful providence. Help us to learn from it and to apply it to our own stories. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen portion of the service that we title Setting of the Table. Just a reminder that the sermon, of course, is we've been called here before the Lord as His people, as His children, and we've been fed by His Word, and now we're going to be fed by the sacrament of the table. And so we want to connect you know, what we have been talking about in the sermon with what we're about to do. These are not just isolated events, but they flow from one another. So as I was thinking through the whole issue of God's providence in the life of Paul, I ran across an article, a short essay here, if you will, by John Piper that I thought was really helpful as we prepare and think about uh, God's providence in our lives and and to remember. So uh, uh, he says, uh, we will begin to unfold the doctrine of God's providence. The word providence is striking. It comes from the word provide, which has two parts, pro uh, the Latin forward or on behalf of, and vide uh, is to see. So you might think that provide would mean to see forward or to foresee, but it doesn't. It means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support, 
And so the noun providence has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. Paul understands this. He's walking in to enormous danger. How can he do that? So he continues, why this? There is a linguistic reason and the theological reason. Linguistically, pro means on behalf of as well as forward. So provide can mean to see on behalf of. We say in English, I'll see to that. So to see, so see to means take care of or provide for. In other words, seeing something with a purpose is to make provision for what you see. Seeing to something is actually, is acting on behalf of something. It is providing. Thus, providence is the act of God's seeing to the universe. He'll see to that. Theologically, there is a reason why seeing to means providing for. Remember the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, his son, and before they went up to the mountain, Isaac said to his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when God had shown Abraham a ram caught in the thorns, uh, says, Abraham, call the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Whenever it says provide in Genesis 22, the Hebrew word is see. Very simply, Abraham said to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. And in verse 14, the Lord will see. Why does God's seeing in Hebrew mean that he will provide? I think the deepest answer is that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without His sustaining it. Whenever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, He performs. If He inspects, He affects. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. When God sees, he sees too. His seeing is always with a view to doing. Where he patrols, he controls. What then is the providence of God? Here is the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, By his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things. And why should we study this? What good will it do? Here is the answer from question 28 that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet one of them fall one of them will fall to the not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. Paul could do what he did, face what he faced, endure what endure what he endured because he understood this. And I exhort you to walk and trust in the provision of God.
He provided bread and wine. He provided a Savior for you and for me. Amen. Father, we are indeed privileged to come before you, and we do so only through Jesus Christ, because we know that we have been received by you through him. We know that we have been adopted, that we are indeed your sons, and that we are welcomed in your presence. Father, that indeed is amazing, and for that we give you great thanks. Go with us this week. Help us to love you. Help us to love one another in our families, in our communities, at work, at school. May we be found faithful and rejoicing in in and for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.